Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please, together to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, 19 through 23, our text today. The title of the message, Bodybuilding 101. Now, uh, laughing at my own title, because uh, I got that from college days when I used to hang out with the athletes, and they would tell me about uh, the classes they were taking, uh, encouraged by their coaches to stay eligible. And so they would take uh, some of the easier classes in the PE department. I remember one of those was music appreciation, which they told me was uh, someone would ask, do you want to hear some music? And they would respond, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> um, the other class that I thought was hilarious to, for full scholarship athletes to be taking was walking 101. <laughs> A friend of mine made a B minus in that. So we're talking about something very different today, bodybuilding 101. To remind us of the context of these verses, Paul is giving practical instructions to believers on how to get along with other Christians. He doesn't group Christians the way we typically do by race or gender or socioeconomic status. Rather, he simply points out two potential unity problems with groups within the church. One group he calls the strong and the other he calls the weak. Remember, we define the strong as those who have come to embrace and enjoy their Christian liberty. And the weak are those who have yet to fully understand and embrace their Christian liberty. But it uh, occurred to me that we didn't define Christian liberty. That could be confusing. Christian liberty in Paul's context here is the freedom from the Old Testament ceremonial laws and dietary restrictions if you're Jewish and freedom from cultural taboos associated with pagan worship if you're not. And so... It's probably easier to define what Christian liberty is not. The Bible does that. Christian liberty is not a license to sin. That is to do those things which the Bible clearly prohibits or omit from doing those things which the Bible clearly commands. So we're talking about secondary issues that are morally neutral, that are not forbidden or prescribed in the Bible. And Paul uses two examples here in Romans 14 to show us what he's speaking of. In verse 2 he talks about our diet. He says, some in the church eat only vegetables, others eat meat. Uh, and then secondly, verse 5, he talks about how we keep our religious calendar. Some celebrate one day as more important than the other, and vice versa. He carries that thought all the way through chapter 15 uh, into verse 13. And so because it's such a long section of Scripture, I've divided uh, this section into four sermons. This is the third of the four. The first sermon two weeks ago was the Christian and the conscience. And we saw in verse 1 right away that the theme of this entire section is accept one another. That is, don't hold one another at arm's length in the church because of cultural differences or differences of preference or conscience. But he says, in, in, in the same time you're doing that, maintain a clear conscience. He, he warns us against violating our conscience just to get along with others. But ultimately, he says, we must leave the judgment to God. He's a lot better at it than we are. He is omniscient and omnipresent and we're not. So leave the judgment to God. He says all of us must stand before the judgment seat of God. Now last week 
the title of the message was People Before Preference. So again, he says, stop judging your brothers and sisters. But to that, he added, proactively be a helper, not a hinderer. Decide not to be a stumbling block, not to be a person that makes it harder to get to God than easier. And he says, we do that by emphasizing the right things, not these secondary or tertiary issues, but the main things of righteousness and Christian joy and fellowship. Now, you have likely noted, if you've been here the last two years, if we studied every verse in Romans so far, that Paul employs lots of repetition. And so your pastor does. This is intentional, of course, because Paul is making a point and wringing it dry, looking at that point of emphasis from every angle in perspective. And I've often compared, as we've studied Romans, the way Paul works uh, to the way a carpenter uses a nail and the way he uses a screw. Now, a nail connects materials, and it can be a good tool, uh, but it's uh, much more basic. There's a sharp point on the metal end, and you take a club or a hammer and you whack it. And if you get really good at it, in two or three whacks, you can join materials together. A screw is a little more nuanced, a little more specialized. A screw rotates on a fixed point and connects materials by going deeper and deeper with every rotation. And any carpenter in the room will tell you that screws are superior to nails when it comes to holding things together long term. Well, in this section of Romans, Paul's using a screw rather than a nail. He's using repetition. He's going around the same basic point over and again until it's fixed to our consciousness. He's saying, let's not let our differences over matters of personal preference and conviction or conscience cause disunity in the church. Accept one another is the point. Now, in his epistles, Paul often refers to the church as the body of Christ. Individual members are said to be various body parts. All are important, all are necessary. All must be working in unity and harmony for it to be a beautiful picture of the glory of Christ. Now, keep that in mind as I now read our text. Romans 14, 19, Paul writes, So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. May the Lord add his blessing. The reading and hearing of his word. Now on your outline you'll see three points. The first one is construction or demolition. Construction or demolition. Verse 19 he says, so then. Which means in light of what I've said so far. So we have to back up a few verses and see what Paul has emphasized in the previous section. And it's really three things. Number one is that we as Christians can cause our brothers and sisters to stumble by the incorrect use of our Christian liberty. That's in verse 13. Now, in verse 15, he says we can cause our brothers and sisters unnecessary grief and pain by insisting on our own rights and privileges. And we ran out of time last week, but if we had not, we'd have seen the third point, which is we can harm our own Christian witness by overusing our liberty. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of of evil. Paul says, look, there can be a personal conviction. There can be the idea that you have freedom in a certain area. But if you flaunt it, if you overuse it, 
it can cause lost people, I take it, in the community to have a lesser view of Christ and the gospel. And we never want to do anything that would do that. And so those are three reasons why sometimes we are tearing one another down when we should be building one another up. So he says, we are to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. In fact, he says in your English Bible, pursue peace. The Greek word means to chase it down as uh, an animal on the hunt. Go after it with zeal and gusto. Now that's not a passive or a neutral word, is it? Remember we said last week, it's not just ignoring the things which annoy you about other Christians. It's being proactive and trying to promote their progress and sanctification, even as you do your own. And so if we are to pursue the things which make for peace, we need to identify those things, don't we? I didn't ask Russ to do it, but he was led to read Philippians chapter 2 a moment ago. And that's exactly what I was thinking of when I wrote this sermon. Uh, we've been studying the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And one of my favorite Beatitudes is, Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. And of course, the greatest peacemaker ever was the Lord Jesus. Um, and we see that in Philippians 2. And what did he do as a peacemaker? Paul says, let all of us have the same attitude that he had. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. He left the glories and the prerogatives of heaven. He did not hold to them tightly. But he relinquished those privileges for our benefit so that he could take on human flesh so that he could die in our place on the cross. What motivated him? Three things. Number one, love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave. Jesus so loved that he came. Selflessness, putting the needs of others before his own. Jesus had no needs. It's one of the attributes of God is self-sufficiency. He didn't come to earth to take on human flesh because he was bored. He did that for our sake. And then all of that is undergirded by a third trait, which is humility. Jesus said of himself to come unto me for I am meek and humble of heart. So if you want to pursue the things of peace in the church, develop love, selflessness, and humility. In other words, live like Jesus. Go hard after what the world isn't going hard after. As you look at our culture, would you describe it as pursuing love and selflessness and humility and unity? Anything but. But he doesn't stop there. He adds the conjunction and. It's not just pursuing those things which make for peace. To that, add the building up of the body. And hence the title of the message, Bodybuilding 101. You likely know that the word is edification. An edifice is a building. But he has a very specific Greek word here. It's oikodome, which means not just any building, but a home. And so he says, build up the household of faith. Isn't that a beautiful way of thinking about the church? We're called a body with Christ as the head, but we're also called a household, a family, in other words. And we are to be busy building up the family, not tearing it down. So when I was a very young man in my late teens and early 20s, uh, I was trying to pay my college tuition. And every chance I got, I worked for a home builder. And I'd been working for him since I was a very young teenager. And it was enjoyable work. I've always enjoyed home building because, you know, you get to the job and there's no roof and at the end of the day, there's a roof. And, and there's a sense of accomplishment with, with building a home. But uh, if you'll come close, I'll tell you a little secret about my employment. I was not what you call skilled labor. Um, no one ever asked me to measure anything or 
draw any blueprints or even read any blueprints. Um, I was asked to, as we say in the South, tote stuff. Um, I wasn't very smart, but I was freakishly strong as a young man, and, and that made me somewhat valuable in some of these professions. Uh, I could carry heavy loads, and I could lift lumber and, and stack it, um, but what I was really specialized in was demolition. <laughs> Always been good at breaking things. And they would give me a sledgehammer and say, help yourself. Didn't have to worry about if it was cut correctly. I'd just swing this hammer, and at the end of the day, I would clean it up. And you know what I've learned from that experience is it doesn't take very much skill at all to tear people down. Any brute can do it. But it takes a lot of skill and precision to build another person up. It takes an investment of time. It takes wanting to be accurate and, and skilled in what you're doing. And this is what Paul is saying, that, that we are to be about building one another up rather than tearing one another down in the household of faith. Why is that so important to God? Well, look at verse 20. He says, Do not tear the work of God down for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Now, you look at that first sentence, verse 20. Do not tear down... The work of God. Do you know what he's describing there? He's talking about other Christians. He calls other Christians the work of God. Now that reminds me a lot of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, which says, For we, believers, are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now I remember from Sunday school as a child, that word workmanship can rightly be translated masterpiece. Now you read it that way, it takes on a whole new meaning. We are his masterpiece. Now go back and replace that same word in Romans 14, 20. Do not tear down the masterpiece of God for the sake of food. That's why we dare not tear down the body of Christ is because if we do, we're tearing down God's work, God's masterpiece. Many of us were aghast as we've seen on the news the last few months a group of protesters in Europe sneaking into some of the great museums of the world and trying to destroy some of the world's great paintings and works of art. And we know that's wrong because once gone, they're gone forever. And it's not like a doodle on our desk being thrown in the trash. We're talking about the work of the world's great masters. If that's true of the world's great artists, how much more the workmanship of God is worth? How dare we tear it down? How dare we vandalize it? Instead, we should treasure it and value it and lift it up and cause the world to see it. And the second point Paul makes is not only is the other person God's workmanship, the, the motive for doing it, he says, are you willing to tear down the work of God for the sake of food? And Paul knows that food is necessary, but to Paul, food was not something that he thought about a lot. It was simply the fuel to give him the ability to minister. It was neither good nor bad. And, and, and so Paul says, we ought to be willing to give ground on what we eat or don't eat because people are much more important than our preferences. See, food here is a metaphor for any personal preference, which is not biblical. Rather, it's personal or cultural. 
So he might say, technically, you're right, strong Christian. You have the right to eat whatever you want to eat or drink whatever you want to eat. There are no dietary restrictions as far as I can tell in the New Testament. But if you use your liberty as a cudgel or a club to beat the other person into submissiveness, you're not behaving as Jesus did. And in fact, you are devaluing what God says is incredibly valuable. And so when, when it comes to our Christian liberty, we must ask ourselves some questions. One of the questions is, um, concerning your liberty, am I using my freedom to build up the body or to tear it down? That is, am I using my liberty selfishly? And the second question to ask is, am I willing to abstain rather than causing offense? That's our second point, abstinence or offense. Look at, uh, again, verse 20b. He says, look, all things indeed are clean. There's no dietary restrictions in the new covenant, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. The sin is not eating, it's causing offense. So he says, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. So the choice we have is abstinence or offense. What is abstinence? Well, it's the, the practice of restraining oneself from indulging in a pleasurable behavior. We talk about Abstinence before marriage from sexual promiscuity. We talk about abstaining from things like alcohol or drugs, but it could be anything. In fact, he uses that phrase, anything which your brother stumbles over. And look, the, the obvious example, I think, in our culture is alcohol. Now, he's speaking of alcohol here because it was tied to pagan worship and practices, just like the meat offered to idols was. But the problem with alcohol is not that it had alcohol in it. And I've heard well-meaning Baptist preachers say, well, we shouldn't drink alcohol today because the alcohol today is different than the alcohol in Jesus' day. And look, that's probably true. Uh, through distillation practices, and, and they probably diluted their wine somewhat. But, but look, that doesn't hold a lot of water because if the wine they drank in Jesus' day wasn't, didn't have alcohol in it, why did there have to be a prohibition against drunkenness? So the prohibition is be not drunk with wine. Now, you hopefully know, and I've made no secret about it, that I abstain from alcohol. have all my life. I made a decision as a very young man not to drink alcohol, but not for the reasons you might imagine. It's not because I have a conviction that for me to drink alcohol would be a sin. It's because as I looked at my friends who indulged in alcohol and some of my family members who had a problem with alcohol, I, I made a sort of selfish decision that it was too risky for me to drink, that it was not worth it. In other words, as I looked at the advantages and the benefits of drinking alcohol as opposed to the risk of drinking alcohol, I made a business decision. I'm not going to drink alcohol. And I also made the decision because for all I know, if I drink a beer or a glass of wine, I might instantly become an alcoholic. And I tell my own children this. I know a rock-solid way, airtight, that you will never become an alcoholic. You know what it is? Not to take your first drink. So that's why I abstain from alcohol. Now, sometimes I abstain from things as the culture dictates. And again, I'm not holding myself up with a perfect example. I'm far from it. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, about 12 years ago, 
I was invited back to my home state to preach my father, who is a Baptist preacher, his 50th anniversary as a pastor. Great honor. And so I knew a little bit about this church. Uh, they were very conservative in every way as I grew up. And uh, there was one version of the Bible and one version only, that which is appropriate in this church. And so uh, I had made preparation for that. But just in case I had forgotten, my father reminded me. <laughs> and so uh, my parents' home was about six or eight miles from this little country church. And so uh, I was driving my father, my mother and, and family were coming uh, in another car later. And uh, we got about halfway to the church and my father reached under his seat in his passenger side and pulled out what surely must be the biggest King James Bible I've ever seen in my life. And he thrust it towards me and said, you'll be needing this today. Now, he was right. I, I wouldn't dare come to a church where I knew that there was a conviction about this and, and force my own way and say, you people are so backward. Why don't you get with the program? It's, it's the year 2010, I think, at that point. That would have been foolish, wouldn't it? Now, technically, I, I might be right. In fact, I, I think I would be within my rights to use a different version as long as it was faithful to the original text. But what's the point? That's what Paul is saying. Are you willing to offend a brother over unimportant things like that? And some people say, yeah, I am. Well, you're in the wrong. Paul says that's what the sin is. It, it's not the drinking of a glass of wine or, or the reading of a New American Standard Bible. It's forcing your own way to the detriment of someone else. And look, I could give you 20 ways I have failed at that. I gave you two ways in which I've tried to practice it. But, but here's what we need to remind you. We're in the process of sanctification. We're growing. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But I want, I want us to see a third point. Third and finally, conviction over doubt. Conviction or doubt. Verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Now let's just break this down into phrases. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Now he's not talking about the faith that leads to salvation. You can substitute Christian liberty for this is the kind of faith he's talking about here. Does your conscience give you the freedom to do it? So the Christian liberty which you have over any subject have as your own conviction before God. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, there are some that have interpreted this, that God says you can do whatever you want to do as long as you do it in private. Now, that's dangerous, isn't it? Uh, some apply this very literally. I can do whatever I want to do as long as I do it in private. I don't think that's at all what he means. I think simply what he means when he says the faith, the liberty that you have, have as your own conviction before God is don't flaunt your liberty and don't flaunt your convictions. In other words, don't use your liberty or your convictions as a badge of honor or as a spotlight to draw attention to yourself. Because here's how this works. 
Uh, you're in a Sunday school class with a group of people and the subject comes up of some activity. And you instantly say, well, I don't do that. And the attitude is because I'm spiritually superior to the rest of you knuckle draggers around here. That's wrong. That, that's, that's not bringing someone close. That's not accepting them. Then, then on the other hand, when, say, a person in your Sunday school class expresses a heartfelt conviction on a matter that you don't share with, you don't call them out and single them out and embarrass them and say, well, you must be incredibly weak in your faith if you have that conviction. And, and you sort of pat them on the head like you would your little brother and bust their hair a little bit. Oh, one day you're going to be as strong as me. That's wrong. You, you accept them as equal with you in every way. Don't flaunt your liberty or your conviction. And then he says this, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And that is the, the, the goal of liberty is not to elevate yourself about others. It's to have a peace of mind that you're doing the will of God. Because after all, what is the goal of our Christian lives? What, what are we left here for? Is it to make as many points on the legalistic scoreboard as possible? No. I think it's found in Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Paul is writing to the young pastor, Timothy, and he's talking about a particular group of Christians. He says, what they should do is show all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And I think that's not just for that group that he was talking to Titus about. I think that's true of every Christian, whether you're a strong Christian or a weak Christian. Your job and my job in the community is to adorn the gospel. Now, what does that mean to adorn the gospel? It means to show its beauty and its attractiveness, to put Jesus on display so that people would be attracted to him. It's the reason you wear a beautiful necklace, ladies. It's to draw attention to its, its beauty. Okay, And look, we don't have to dress Jesus up. We don't have to water him down. If we will just display Jesus in his full orb glory, it's enough, isn't it? That is, the more we behave and think and talk like Jesus, the more likely it is that your lost neighbors are going to be attracted to the gospel. But to the degree that we're hypocritical and we fail to live up to the standards of Christianity, they are going to be repelled by our hypocrisy. And look, nothing is a truer picture of Christ. Hear this. If you really want to put Jesus on display, if you want to let people see his beauty and be attracted to it, nothing is a truer, more accurate picture of Christ than being strong enough to forego your rights and privileges for the sake of others. Isn't that what he spent his whole life doing? Putting his rights and privileges on the back burner so that others could benefit. That's what Paul meant, Philippians 2, when he said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't hold on to the glories of heaven tightly, but emptied himself and humbled himself in the form of a servant so that he could not live a life of ease and luxury so that he could go to the cross and die an excruciating death for the sake of others. We say, what? Look, Pastor, what, what if I've been a Christian for 20, 30 years and I still have these 
personal convictions that other people don't have. Well, he addresses that. Look at verse uh, 23. He says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. That is, if your conscience won't allow you to participate in some of these things that everyone else is doing, don't do it. It may very well be that you're right and they're all wrong. But everyone else is doing it. So, there's a lot of things everyone else is doing you ought not do. And so he says, don't violate your conscience until God gives you the freedom. Because he says, if you go ahead and do it, you're not doing it because of liberty. You're doing it out of peer pressure. And he says, whatever is not from liberty is sin. So to violate your conscience, I take it, is sinful. So as Luther said, it is neither right nor wise to violate your conscience. Now verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Let me, let me wrap it up with, with this statement that I started to make a while ago, but let me come back to it. We need to remind ourselves over and over and over again and one another that sanctification is a process. Someone gets saved. They're born again, right? They're a brand new Christian. But they're a baby Christian. We're not born again as mature, strong Christians. We're born as infant Christians. And just as with those two babies that we welcomed into our church fellowship last week, they're a week old now. Do we expect them to... Pretty soon go out and get a job. Start ordering off the adult menu at Luby's. No, we know it's a process. We're patient with them because we know that's how God designed it. I wonder why we're not as patient spiritually with one another. We expect a brand new Christian to behave like a 40-year-old. Someone who's been in the faith. No. As I look around our, our church campus today, we've got people that have been saved two days We've got people that have been Christians for 80 years. Do we have the same set of expectations? I hope not. We're going to be painfully disappointed all the time if we do. And look, here's another secret. We have people at every point between those two people, including ourselves. And just as we want everyone to be patient with us, don't we? We go to the supermarket and um, we can't find our credit card and there's three carts behind us. We want people to be patient with us. When we get to the, the four-way stop and we can't remember who gets to go, we want people to be patient with us. But we're not always patient with other person, right? And unfortunately, that's true in the church. Hurry up and get mature. Hurry up and be like me is really what that sounds like to them. Paul says, brothers, these things ought not to be. Here's how you know you are making great progress on the path to spiritual maturity. When you're mature enough to abstain from things you know are okay to do that you really like doing because it might offend someone else. Because it might cause them grief. Because it might make a lost person in the church think less of Jesus. When you're willing to forego those things for things Paul says are really unimportant, then you know you're truly a strong Christian. And it's my prayer that we'll be patient with one another as all of us grow into maturity in the strength of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word and...
it's a sharp word, a painful word, Lord, because we, we see our failings and our faults in it. And Lord, it's easy to sort of dismiss this as something in the culture 2,000 years ago that really doesn't have anything to do with us, but the principles are crystal clear. If there are personal convictions of culture and personal preference that are not forbidden in the Bible, or not commanded in the Bible, Lord, our job is to be patient and give grace to one another. We know that's not a license to sin. Lord, where there's obvious sin, we love one another enough to point it out. But Lord, where's those things that are just personal preferences, would you give us the grace to either abstain or, or not flaunt our liberty? Would you help us be patient with one another as each of us are making progress on that continuum of sanctification? Lord, would you bring us all eventually to full-blown maturity in the faith? And, and Lord, as we're doing that, uh, we're going to fail. We're going to have cultural faux pas and we're going to hurt one another's feelings. Lord, would you help us be forgiving and kind to confess our sins one to another even as we confess them to you. And, and Lord, would you build this body into the unified family of faith that you want us to be. And Father, when that happens, we'll be very careful to give you credit for it. And thanks for it. And I do that now in advance on, the, on behalf of all these people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.